0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Celeste Ng, whose new novel, Little Fires Everywhere, is out now from Penguin Press. Celeste grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Shaker Heights, Ohio. She attended Harvard University and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, won the Massachusetts Book Award, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and the ALA's Alex Award. She is a 2016 NEA Fellow, and she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Little Fires Everywhere is set in 1990s Shaker Heights, a progressive planned community where several explosive issues of identity and social responsibility are playing out. Enigmatic artist Mia Warren and her daughter, Pearl, have just moved to town, and their unconventional lifestyle shakes up their rigidly picture-perfect landlords, the Richardson family. Meanwhile, the town is mesmerized by an adoption case that pisses a struggling Chinese immigrant against the affluent white couple who wants to adopt her baby. In both of her novels, Celeste explores with fresh precision issues of identity that can often be diffuse or reductive. In our conversation, we talk about the need for underrepresented groups to have a multiplicity of narratives, and how she thinks attitudes toward the other have changed since The World of Everything I Never Told You, which is set in the 1970s. As readers of that book and Little Fires Everywhere know, Celeste is also a master of the opening line. We also discuss the importance of beginnings and what a good beginning achieves, both for the writer and for the reader. In fact, we geek out pretty hard about process in this episode, from finding the right narration to analyzing your own work. There are a lot of ideas in this conversation that I've already put into practice with my own writing. I hope they're helpful for you too.
1: The idea is this little kind of like delicate, like plant shoot, and if you try and straighten it up too much, you'll snap it.
0: I wanted to jump in, actually, by talking about openings, because I love the way that you begin both of your books. Uh, and, I, and if you don't mind, I would love to just read the opening lines for folks who, who might need a refresher or maybe haven't read them. Um, so everything I never told you, the first lines are, Lydia is dead, but they don't know this yet. And then in your latest book, Little Fires Everywhere, begins, everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer, how Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. And I was just like so in love with the way that you opened both of those books. And And I know that from reading some interviews with you, especially with Everything I Never Told You, that actually came very late in the process, what is ultimately the opening. And can you just kind of talk about your theory of – of opening books and what you like to accomplish in those first lines in that first chapter?
1: Sure. Um, So I didn't realize until I had written the second book and was starting to do question and answer sessions about it that um, I had used a similar move in both of my two novels so far in sort of giving away sort of what in other books might be considered sort of the big secret climactic event, Um, you know, that Lydia dies or that there is a fire. Um and so I was in the position of having to go back and kind of go, well why why did I do this? And I think um I think it really goes to sort of my theory about how a story or a book should start. Um first that you want to I think you want to sort of grab the reader and you want to give them a sense of where the story is going. Um my feeling about it always is I don't want to wonder when I'm reading something is this going anywhere where are we going? Um, the best comparison i have is sort of like if you get on a train you want the conductor to tell you where the train is going and you know what the main stops are along the way and then if you want to keep if that's where you want to go you stay on the train and if that isn't where you want to go then that's your time to get off the train and i feel like that's sort of the same sort of thing that i want to do for the readers to give them a cue about where this book is going And, uh, you know, I don't want to pull punches for them or, you know, surprise them later on. So um, for me, that's a way of both grabbing the reader's attention and also just kind of telling the reader, Here's what kind of book this is going to be. You know, I want to I want to set up the expectations right at the beginning. And actually, I think that's how I tend to approach short story writing as well. Is that I want to hook the reader in in that moment of what does this mean? What's what's going on? How are we going to get there? And then I want to focus the reader's attention always on not what is going to happen, but how are we going to get to this point that you know I've been told we're going to.
0: Right. It it almost gives you a little bit more relief to just be like, okay, so I know what's happening. And now I can just really luxuriate in how in the in the mechanics of, you know, getting from point A to point B.
1: Exactly, and I'm I'm always more interested in, as you said, those those mechanics. You know, for me, that's you know the the relationships between the characters and sort of all of the events that make up the story, versus sort of this uh, kind of like shrouded uh, destination that we're going to. Um, I talked about this a little bit with the first novel, but it's it's true in the second as well that um you know to hold that information back in some way starts to feel like you're kind of like being coy with the reader. You're holding back on you know like oh, but I'm not going to tell you what happens next. Um, you know, and that That's never the sort of relationship that I want to set up between, you know, me as the author and then the reader. Um, In Everything I Never Told You, uh, in the original versions of the book, you didn't know what had happened to Lydia. You didn't know whether she was alive or dead until about 40 pages in. And that really misdirected the reader in a lot of ways. And in some ways, it felt like it would do the same thing to hold the house fire back in Little Fires Everywhere. And so when I started writing this book, that actually was the first bit of the book that I read or that I wrote. Um, sort of, I knew right away that that was sort of what I needed to put on the table for the reader to to start off with.
0: Right, right. It's funny, it's reminding me of this uh, assignment that I had in grad school. I uh, was in the magazine journalism program at NYU, and we had this one, you know, very small reporting assignment where we had to go out into Washington Square Park and write about this one statue of, of some historic figure whose name and significance I now completely forget. But almost to a person, all of us in this, you know, 400 word assignment like pulled this whole uh you know Skull and Daggers Act about who the person was and we didn't actually name the the name of the statue name the man on the statue until the very end and our professor was just like you guys <laughs> You need to cool it. This is not it. It's not cute. You're not. You know, kind of like. I think. I think there is that inclination to be sometimes. You know, in a, a certainly like as we were then, like very inexperienced writers to just be like, but look how clever I'm being. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think no, I think that's right. I think the impulse too is because we there is a pleasure in sort of as the reader figuring out what's going on. So when you start off with like, oh, you know, like he stands there looking over the square, you know, with the hat on his head or whatever, and you know, all the description, then there's a cleverness that you feel as a reader when you figure that out. But it also then, you know, you're spending your time trying to guess whether or not you're right about the person, right? And in some ways that keeps your focus off of Other things that you might want to, you know, you might want to talk about, like, I don't know how the statue relates to the square or whatever it is. I think it's the same in a book that we, we appreciate cleverness um, as readers. And so as a writer, it's really tempting to kind of play that game with the reader. But at the same time, that's not the only game that you can play. Right.
0: So can you talk a little bit jumping off that? What what are some of the games that you enjoy uh, engaging with with the reader? (laughs)
1: Well, I guess I never think about it as a game. But one thing that I like as, as a reader myself is when you get to make connections, right? Not exactly that, um, you know, I don't want it to be sort of like when you're watching a movie and you're like, oh, that's the killer. You know, you you figure out like the answer to the story, but that you start to see how the story is put together and you start to say, Hey, I've seen that painting before, or I've seen this thing before. or Oh, I remember that party that's going to come back and be relevant here. I mean, I think there's a real, there's a, a slightly sort of larger scale joy in as the reader sort of putting those things together. And so I do like to do that with, um, with the reader is to, to sort of lay clues, not not as hints, but as things that the reader will sort of pick up on and like find find joy in you know kind of deciphering as they go along.. Um. I've been reading lately a lot of linked short story collections, and one of the joys for me in that is sort of figuring out how each of those pieces fits together and in seeing the overlaps and saying, oh, this is the same person as in this story, or, oh, I've seen that barmaid before. She was also in this story, right? You know, I feel like that is something that kind of adds on to the experience rather than sort of reducing it into just like a puzzle to be solved. What are you reading? Um, I've been reading a couple – I think. I read a great collection by uh, Jamie Quatro called "I Want to Show You More," um, which is again a, a series of linked short stories. Um, they don't. It's not a story. It's not a novel in stories, which I feel like some people. Um, often, I think, use those terms interchangeably. It it doesn't add up to a novel, but each of the stories sort of takes place in the same world and um, involves the same characters and sort of shows different facets of um, this really complicated uh, relationship that the main character is having. Um, And I also read a great collection by a young British author called Daisy Johnson, and the book is called Fen. Uh, It takes place in the Fens of England. And The stories don't exactly relate to each other. They don't have exactly the same characters, but they all take place in the same um, sort of town. And so you see different characters going to the same places in different stories. you see there's, there's parts of, uh, the stories where you'll hear rumors, uh, in one story and then the same rumor comes through in the other story. And it's almost like this is sort of like the town's knowledge coming through as a whole. And, um, it's really beautiful to see those, those pieces kind of intersect with each other and, and build off of each other.
0: I agree. Have you read, uh, Wild by Robin MacArthur?
1: I have not actually. Um, somebody else was just telling me about that recently. So I need to check that out. Now. I think
0: it, it's, it's, it's totally stole my heart, uh, in part because I I come from Appalachia and I write a lot about Appalachia and West Virginia specifically, which is my home state, and so so the rural is a is a big fascination for me. And so she was writing about a a rural Vermont uh, community, and it's the same thing. It's just like these just sort of whispers across, and maybe somebody appears very briefly in another story, but it's nothing cutesy. It just like adds this really beautiful texture, and you feel like it's like a breathing thing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost I feel like those little kind of nods. I mean, we talked we were talking about, you know, games that we play with the reader um, and it can be sort of like cutesy, but it also in, in some ways just adds to the feeling of this being a fully formed world where characters sort of step into the story and then step out of the story. But you have this sense that they continue to exist even when they're not on screen, so to speak. And I really like that feeling. Um, It's, I think a lot of people complain about short stories as feeling too sort of like neatly fenced off. Um, And that, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that people often say they prefer novels because there's that big sort of immersive feel. But I feel like sometimes short stories can do that. Um, if, as you said, you know, there's this sort of little nod where a character will show up or, you know, you'll see something that's familiar. Um, it, it gives almost the sense that there's, there's a big world out there and you're just looking at little flashes of it sort of as you walk through.
0: Right, right. I would love to hear you talk about, uh, if this is something, I know these are the sorts of process questions that can be a little hard to articulate, but, you know, it, it's always something that I'm thinking about that, transition in the writing process between telling yourself the story and then turning it into something that the reader can engage with kind of almost just like taking away uh the pieces that are too overt or you know when once you get a command on what the story is sort of how you then craft it to something that a reader can can feel a part of.
1: You no, know, I love these questions because I'm a huge sort of craft and and process dork, basically. That's and so what we're all about. One of, <laughs> one of my favorite things is like you know talking to writer friends and being like, okay, so how did you do this? Like, let's get really specific. Totally. Um, for me, I I have to always sort of have a, the general shape of the story before I can even get started because otherwise, I feel like there are too many decisions to make. There's it's like being faced with the blank page. And so when I have an idea about sort of where the story is going to begin and where it's going to end, sort of the rough shape of it, and a few sort of little points along the way that I know are going to be significant, that's when I can kind of get going. But for me, I often, I think I need to spend some time kind of digesting just what the characters are and sort of what it is that I'm dealing with. Um, Before, as you said, I can kind of translate that into something that the reader is going to be able to understand. Um, I really liked what you said about taking away the pieces that are sort of more overt. For me, I think about it as sort of scaffolding that a lot of times I'm writing towards something that I'm trying to understand. Absolutely. And so my process is that I'm writing and I'm getting either more and more and more articulate, or I'm getting I, I've started off with the main thing, and I'm it's not that I'm becoming less articulate, but I'm I'm stepping away from it so that you can see sort of a bigger picture. And then whenever I reach that kind of comfortable middle ground. That's when I have to go back and take out the stuff that's either too far or too, too explicit. Um, and so for me, there's a lot of writing on the page. And then often I will step back and I usually begin each day by rereading what I did the day before. And then I will sometimes write about what it is that I think I'm talking about you know, almost as if I'm analyzing somebody else's text where I was like, okay, so I think the reason the character is doing this is that she's actually, um, this is really in response to her mother, right? You know, and I'll write those sorts of things. Um, I just this morning was looking through old notebooks, trying to find notes on something. And I found a lot of notes that I wrote about, um, little fires everywhere throughout the the two years that I was writing the book. And I would find these pages where I was like, oh, I've ex- explicitly articulated in here what I think the theme is, and I know that that came really late, and that was me kind of working over this you know, rough draft that I had produced, trying to figure out what it was that I was talking about. Mm.
0: And I think that that's just, I think that's a truth for me in life, but especially in writing, so much of the process seems to just be realizing things as if for the first time over and over and over
1: again. I think that's absolutely true, and I think, too, that it's its a lot of times like you can't, you can't see what it is that you're working on until you have had some distance from it. And part of the, that getting that distance for me is writing it out, right? It's, it's almost this process of sort of like self-analysis. And so I know that there are writers out there who outline and then write from the outline. And my process is actually the reverse, which is that I write first and then I have to go back and I kind of outline what it is that I was writing about. And then I can kind of look and say, oh, you know what? These three things, you know, this keeps showing up. That must be something that my, you know, my my mind is turning over.
0: Yeah, yeah. That sounds very similar to the way that I work as well. It's a lot of like, uh, and I think that that's something as I'm, you know, just a little bit about my background is I am trained in journalism, and and I've written mostly mostly nonfiction. Uh, but I've been working on a novel for the past like year or so, and so th- it's kind of exciting new territory. And and in a lot of ways, you know, because you don't get taught quite the same things um, when, right. you're, when you're learning the craft of nonfiction. Um, so kind of really like trusting that, uh, you know, subconscious unconscious mind that's saying like. This symbol is going to keep appearing or this thing is going to happen and and it's going to be a while before you understand why. And just sort of like, you know, letting that roll on.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly true. There's this um, thing that I'm I'm starting to realize about stories is that at a certain point, the story starts to kind of resonate with itself. And it sort of starts to you start to see the internal logic that maybe has been there in the story that you have been trying to uncover. Um, uh, One of the writing professors at the University of Michigan, where I did my grad program, um, Michael Byers had given a craft talk and he said at a certain point, the story starts to tell you how to write it. It starts to like help you write itself. And it will remind you, you know, of the fireman in chapter two, just when you're getting to chapter 10 and you realize there's going to be a fire, you know, all those kinds of things. And I like that idea that the story at a certain point gets its own momentum and like kind of can keep going and and even kind of keep itself rolling.
0: Absolutely. I want to go back really quickly to how What you said when we started talking about this, which is that you need to have a kind of clear idea, a clearish idea of how it's going to begin and how it's going to end before you sit down. So before you start then, is that you just kind of – is that only happening in your mind? You're just sort of – it's cooking back there and you keep thinking about it. Or is, is there a drafting process that starts to get that stuff out?
1: It's mostly, it's mostly in my mind. Um, I take notes occasionally, which is sort of my way of, um, tricking myself into getting work done. So I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not actually writing it. I'm just taking notes on this book I'm reading, or maybe I think about something that has to do with the character. And I write that down. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of slowly recording those things, but, um, a lot of it, uh, it tends to happen when I'm like not sleeping. I don't, I don't sleep very well. And so often I'm lying awake and I'm just turning over sort of the ideas that I've got going or the characters that I'm thinking about. And, um, there's something i think about being in that semi-awake state that um kind of allows the rational part of my brain to turn off a little bit and allows sort of that subconscious part of my mind to you know make associations and start to think about things and um and be less sort of like narratively driven um than i am when i'm awake you know i think when we're awake we're often we're trying very consciously to figure things out and put things in place and get things in order and you you have to almost turn off that part of your brain, at least for a while when you're generating the idea. Um it's sort of like the idea is this little kind of like delicate like plant shoot and if you try and straighten it up too much it'll you you'll snap it. Um and so for me a lot of that process really is just sort of mental and although I tend to forget some of the things that I'm thinking about, uh, the things that seem to be um, central to the project tend to stick around. And that's sort of a useful kind of winnowing process of letting all those things that maybe aren't as important or aren't as interesting just kind of like fall away.
0: Right, right. And I read you uh, say, you know, in promoting uh, everything I never told you that that the... In some sense, the the main action of the story sprung from a, a anecdote that your husband had told you. Do you remember what generated the beginnings of Little Fires Everywhere?
1: Um, it really it grew out of a desire to write about my hometown. So it was a slightly different process that I was thinking about my hometown. I'd been away from home for about a decade. And I was in that stage where I still had a lot of nostalgia, but I could also sort of look back with a little clarity and see that some of the things that i had grown up with were really unusual. And so it came out of thinking about the town as a character. So that's sort of how how this story came to be. But the fire portion of it, I do remember, um, you know, I had these characters and I had the town and I was sort of thinking about what kinds of trouble they might stir up for each other. And at the time, I used to work at a coffee shop in Cambridge. And one day I got there and the air was kind of smoky and everybody in the coffee shop was talking about how the church around the corner had, had an electrical fire and it basically burned not quite to the ground, but basically to the studs. And I, I knew at that point that there was going to be a fire um, at some point in the book. And I went over to take a look at the church and take notes on it and see what it looked like. Um, and that's sort of where that image of the fire that that starts at the beginning of the book, um, that's where that came from.
0: Yeah, there, there's something so, I don't know, it's such a, it's such a delicious piece of of symbolism and drama, you know, to the fire. I was I was in a workshop this summer and with a with a bunch of Appalachian writers and a, a friend of mine, uh, we were both comparing our our samples, what we were having workshopped and there's both that, you know, for some reason in that place in that setting, we both really wanted there to be fire <laughs> and we were like, why do we keep why are why is everyone on fire? Why is everything on fire?
1: Well, it's so, I mean, fire is just such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting concept because for um, for us as humans, obviously it's something that we're afraid of. It's something that can get out of control really easily. Um, you, you know, look at what's happening in California right now. Mm. Um, so there's that huge sense of, um, potential danger, um, that it's this thing that we have to try and control or maybe even prevent. Um, you know, and you think about all of the great fires that have happened in history. Like this is something that, you know, we still have to kind of live in, in fear of, or at least, you know, with some caution around. And, and at the same time, fire is behind so much of what we're able to do, right? Like it's sort of the first... Thing that allows us to cook our food and to harness energy and to do all kinds of stuff, and so it is this kind of amazing tool. And so the fact that we need it, and yet we also have to be so careful of it, and we have to try and control it, but we have to use it. You know, it, I feel like we have a really interesting relationship with with fire as human beings, and there's something about it that I think captures our our attention artistically.
0: Yeah, it's a real uh, man versus nature kind of negotiation.
1: It is. But in the same time that it's a man versus nature, I mean, we still also need it. I I think a similar thing happens with water um, much more than any of the other, you know, like elements with earth and air, I guess, is the other one. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think about how um, I've always lived in a place that's been right on a body of water and most places are right. But I grew up in Cleveland which is right on Lake Erie. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh, which is right at the junction of three rivers. And now I live in Boston, which is right, you know, obviously right in the ocean. And, you know, I think we're, we're drawn to water. We need water, right? Because we need it to live. We need it for our crops. We need it for transportation. But at the same time, like, you know, it, it, our relationship with it is very sort of wary, like here in Boston, we're thinking a lot about, um, as the ocean level rises due to climate change, mm-hmm. which parts of the city are going to be underwater? Mm-hmm. You know, like we're, mm-hmm. we, I think like that's something that a lot of people are thinking about. And so again, that kind of push and pull, like it's, it's adversarial, but it's also sort of symbiotic. It's, um, I don't know. It's really complicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating you bring that up, uh, and to hear your experience with it. Cause mine is so different. Uh, in Appalachia and then even now you know now that we've lived in Detroit for a few years and we lived here kind of over the course of the the Flint crisis happening and mm-hmm. and so i feel like my the idea of poison water is always very is always very top of mind for me and and i think it's really uh some a very powerful sort of symbol and image for me to think about where i come from that like you know even this element like this this vital element like it's not safe and, and we are not safe. You know, that's kind of the way that I that I always turn it over in my head.
1: Oh, that's fascinating.
0: When you started about thinking like this, I want to talk about my hometown, like was there did you have kind of a message in mind or were you just more like, I want to explore what does this mean to me now after all this time?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very much more on the exploration side. I mean, I wanted to look at sort of the tension um, that I saw between sort of the town's kind of idealism and um, progressivism and sort of like this very kind of like almost hippie inclusiveness, um, you know, where they really believe that they can create a utopia, that everyone can be welcome, that everyone can be equal, you know, these really wonderful high-minded ideals. And then the kind of weird way that it's put into effect in, in Shaker Heights, at least, which is really sort of through rules and, like, legislation and, like, order and regulations, um, there there seemed to me to be such a fascinating tension there between sort of, like, the what the goal of the community was, and then the way that it was put into place. And so I really wanted to kind of look at that question of sort of order and ideals. So I never I never start out with a message, but at a certain point in time, I start to realize that, you know, I have, I have an opinion on it, and that's what starts to come out in writing the book, I think.
0: Yeah, and what I think is such a, a fascinating thing to explore within that as well is how Uh, how perhaps well-intentioned but misguided a lot of it is. And I'm thinking of Lexi saying, uh, you know, we don't even see race. And it's like, well, that's that's the wrong message. Right. <laughs> like, that's not the point.
1: That's, no, that's 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 very much it. And, um, you know, I, I w- was really interested to look at the ways that characters um, mean well and yet maybe fall short of what it is that they're trying to do and often I think can't see that they've fallen short because they're so blinded by their own good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think every one of the characters in the book really is trying to do what they think is right they just aren't always able to see that what, you know, what they believe is right maybe has consequences that they don't intend. Right. Um, and, and Lexi saying, you know, we don't we don't see race is, is a prime example. You know, she says that her, her boyfriend, Brian, who is a minor character in the book and who's black, probably like we're, we're quite aware that he does see race um, in ways that she isn't aware of it, that she gets to kind of, of, of ignore.
0: Right. And it goes back to that idea of order because it's really kind of one person wanting to impose their order.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That um, there's this idea that like, oh, then this is this is how we are supposed to do things. And yet that's not necessarily going to work out for everybody. Right, right. Um,
0: How much do you think the fundamental issues around racism and especially, you know, racism to to immigrant families have changed really since, you know, the the period that you write about and everything I never told you, which kind of stretches you know, more, more in kind of the middle 20th century. And then, you know, we're in the 90s and in little fires everywhere. Do you, did you see a big difference in, you know, maybe less about what's overt and less, you know, weird looks in the grocery store and that kind of thing. But, but do you think that kind of at root, it's the same situation?
1: I I mean, I think that we've made a lot of progress. I mean, there certainly are still sort of like more weird looks in the grocery store, you know, or or there's, those still exist, not more, but, um, there's a little moment in the beginning of everything I never told you where um a woman in the grocery store asks the the children, you know if they're Chinese, and then she pulls her eyes into slits. and that was something that happened to me, you know, within the past mm, like eight years or so oh I was God. living here in Boston. and it wasn't meant maliciously. it was just this it was it was a man in that case, but he was he was really proud that he had like figured this thing out, and I was like, oh, Okay that's this is this is where we are. Um so I think that a lot of things have changed. I mean I think that just because our country has become more ethnically diverse, more people have, you know, like met an Asian person, right or like right. seen an Asian person or seen a black person or know someone who's not, you know, not of their race or whatever it is. Um and I feel like that's sort of a, a really important first step. Um, I think though, that sort of the fundamental discomfort with people who are different from you is still there, as is I think most people really have at heart a desire to um to try and and accept other people's differences. They just don't always know how to do it. And they don't always know that they don't even realize that a lot of times things that they're doing, which they think are accepting are actually maybe alienating the person that they're they're talking to. Um, you know, one of those things being like, I don't see race or, um, you know, I have friends who are mixed race who are told, oh, but you know, you, you, you don't even read as ethnic, you read Mm -hmm. as white. So I just think of you as white. These are, these are meant to be, um, kind of like broaching the divide, but actually in a lot of ways, what it does is it reminds you that one person thinks they're walking over the divide and the other person is, is still noticing how deep that divide is. Um so I feel like we've made progress and yet this is just something that sort of fundamentally we have to keep on working at and we might be getting to the point where we are now sort of working uh at like sort of a finer grain level <laughs> like a more granular level mm-hmm. but um I also feel like this is this is part of human nature and part of our you know our DNA as a country is that we we want two things at the same time. We want to be united and to think that we're all the same fundamentally, and yet we also want to sort of recognize and notice all the ways in which we're different. And it's really hard to sort of reconcile both of those things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, I would, was, the, the next episode that's going to air of WMFA is with Cindy Clemens, and she's talking about uh, how she feels that often. Writers of color and and really, I think, artists of color in kind of various media, she was saying, um, she said that, you know, she feels often this expectation to kind of, like, be a tour guide to, in her case, like, the Black experience (laughs) or the African, you know, and she's part South African and part American, it's just like, what, you know, there are so many people who can ask so much of me or judge so much about me. And do you, is that something that weighs on you as you're writing or just in general with your life as a writer, you know, do you feel like you have some sort of responsibility in that sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I feel like I don't really know any writers of – well, writers of color or really from any sort of marginalized group um, who who don't feel in some ways this sort of dual sense of obligation. On the one hand, this obligation to kind of, as you said, be a tour guide and kind of sort of like explain because there's this feeling that, well, I have to kind of represent, you know, my – my ethnicity or my you know my class or my group, or you know, the people who live in this region that I come from, whatever it is, um, there's this sort of sense that if you are the only one or one of the first to be writing about this subject, that everybody is going to look at what you do and you know, use that as the basis of their opinion from now on, right? If there's that feeling of sort of being the the first to represent your group. um and then I also feel like there's this responsibility, at least that I feel to Try and remind people that I'm not the only one, mm. and to kind of make more seats at the table, so to speak. Um, I think that um, there's this this idea of the the danger of the single story um, that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about in a TED Talk that I think kind of went viral, where she talked about how the problem is is really that if you have only one person telling the story of a culture or a group of course they're going to miss things, right? Of course they're not going to speak for everyone. That's almost as, as bad as whatever stereotype they're trying to replace. And so a lot, a lot of times what you really need is sort of like a multiplicity of voices that you can see all the facets of different kinds of experience. And, um, I think that's exactly right. And so I feel this responsibility both to kind of, um, represent, whatever group I'm coming from, because I don't even think of myself as being a representative, you know, Chinese American, let alone Asian American, you know, with all the problematic connotations of that term. But I, you know, I want to try and speak truly about the things that I'm talking about. And at the same time, I also want to remind people, I don't have the whole story. And so here are other writers that you should also read. Here are other people you should listen to, um, you know, to kind of stretch that spotlight, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I, I love all of that. I completely agree with that. It it's very. It rings very true for writing about Appalachia as well. And I, I've joked to my other Appalachian writer friends that I want to make a T-shirt that says, ask me about Hibbley Elegy, because it's just like, everybody <laughs> is like, oh, Every- there's the narrative. Okay, good. Exactly.
1: And- you know, um, and th- that's exactly right. I was thinking that because I was in the bookstore just the other day, and I saw that, and I thought about how that was suddenly the book that everybody was like, oh, well, that book will explain everything. And I always get very uncomfortable whenever any one story is put forward as like the full explanation of, of things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that's, that happens a lot of times with, um, cultures that don't get, um, they don't get a lot of voice, you know, that then the first person who comes in, everyone sort of assumes like, oh, well, that's going to explain everything that I know, um, that I need to know about this culture. And of course it's not. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's, that's one of the things that I feel like we have to sort of struggle against is the idea that, you know, one book is going to be able to explain anything to us.
0: Uh, rather intriguingly to me, in the acknowledgments of Little Fires Everywhere that your husband uh, knew writing was your job before you did, and I wonder if you could talk about coming coming to writing as your job.
1: Sure. So coming to writing as my job was a very long process. It started basically from when I was a small child up until like I would say well after the publication of my first yeah. novel. Um, it was only at that point that I started to think, oh, okay, maybe this is actually something that I could do, and and to really start to be comfortable calling myself a writer as a job. Um, so I, uh, am the child of two immigrants from Hong Kong who were both scientists. Uh, my dad was a physicist and my mom is a chemist. Um, and they came to the U S in the sixties for grad school, um, stayed, were naturalized, got their PhDs, sort of worked, um, kind of worked their way up. And, um, coming out of a family of scientists and a family of immigrants and a family of just sort of personally practical people i had this sense that writing was not a job mm-hmm. that that was like a, it was maybe a hobby right but that wasn't something that you could you could say that you were going to do as a profession right that just was not a thing um and i don't think they said that to me but it, my sense was just that like that's not a thing that anybody does you know it's sort of like if you were saying to somebody that you were going to be a professional juggler right like that's not a thing that we think of as Being a job. And so um, for most of my life, writing was this thing that I knew was important to me, that I knew I wanted to do, but that was always on the side. It was always sort of supported by some other job idea that I had, whether that was being a paleontologist or being an astronaut, which for some reason as a child seemed like more plausible career choices to me. Um, I don't know why I felt that being a paleontologist or an astronaut was more possible than being a writer. But you know, then I was going to be and write on the side, and then I was going to go and be a journalist and write on the side. And I realized that I did not have the personality to do that, so I was going to work in publishing and then write on the side. And then at a certain point, when I realized publishing was not for me, I said, "Well, I'm going to go and get a a PhD in English and get a tenure track position and teach uh, literature, and then I will write on the side." And it was at that point that a um, former teacher of mine said, "You know." you keep saying you're going to write on the side, you're going to write on the side. What if you put that in the front instead and just see what happens? And she pointed me towards MFA programs. And that was sort of the first time that I had prioritized writing over something else. And now where
0: in your life was that? Were you just out of undergrad or? I
1: was just out of undergrad. Yeah. I got, um, I got a job in publishing. So I was working in textbook publishing, and I think I started it in September. And I think by October, I was already formulating my escape plan because it just it wasn't the job for me. And it was at that point that I started saying, well, I'll take the GRE, you know, I'll, I'll go and go back to grad school. And this was a, um, a basically a college, a college instructor of mine who had been sort of a mentor and, and now is a friend. And when I went to her and said, OK, so I'm thinking about getting a Ph.D., you know, can you write me a letter of recommendation? she who was just finishing her dissertation at the time was like don't do this unless you actually really want to do this like that's mm. <laughs> you need to you need to rethink your priorities and so i went to grad school um you know i was fortunate enough to get into a few programs and i went to the university of michigan and that was the first time where i feel like i was being very explicitly told this writing is worthwhile. you know uh, the University of Michigan funds all of its MFA students and so to be told, like we think that your writing is worthwhile, we think you should do it and we're gonna pay for you to come and take classes here and give you a stipend to live off of so that you can do that. It was, it was a really powerful thing. Um, you know, it was sort of this sense of like well if they think this is worth, time and money, then maybe, maybe it is worth time and money. And I think it's really important for young writers or emerging writers rather to, um, to sort of have that permission given to them, because it's really hard to give that permission to yourself, especially when you're starting off. Um, and so for me, that was a really big step sort of my, that my professors and my classmates and the program, we're all taking writing really seriously and taking my writing seriously um, and so it was it was several years after I finished the program that I actually finished my novel and managed to get it published. but that was sort of an important turning point in just even thinking that this was something that it was okay to spend time doing.
0: yeah, I think that's a really key point. I think of it sometimes too as like formalizing it you know it's just like you need you need that uh whatever whatever makes it sort of like legitimate in your head, because there's so many reasons on its face that you feel like it's not legitimate.
1: Oh, ex- there, exactly. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I love that idea of formalizing it. Um, you know, it's almost sort of like you go in and you just get certified that what you were, have been doing all along is, is totally worth doing. But it's true. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons that people feel like they're, um, they're sort of imposters or they're frauds or that they're, you know, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Um, there's, you know, cultural ones, there's social ones. Um, I want to give you come from a family that doesn't have a lot of money as right. a, a friend of mine does. And she was saying this, she's like, you know, there's such a feeling of like, you know, if you're doing something, it has to, it has to be worth it. It has to pay for itself because if you're, you know, if you're checking every month to make sure you have enough money to pay the rent, to take time and say, well, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to quit my job and write feels like incredibly irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think sometimes, you know, we're not able to give that permission to ourselves. And that's where I think that, you know, things like, uh, you know, awards or citations or, you know, programs like the MFA program, or even just encouragement is some, is a way of giving emerging writers that kind of, um, authority and permission that, it takes, I think, I feel like it takes you, nobody has it until after they have the success. Right. If then.
0: (laughs) Right, right. So did you leave the MFA program and then, I mean, I know you mentioned working at a coffee shop, uh, earlier. So I, I'm guessing you still had to kind of squeeze writing in after the program.
1: I did. I should clarify that when I was working in a coffee shop, I was writing. So that was in my like not working, you know, not, oh, not, right. not okay. on the clock time. But I did. I had a lot of, I had odd jobs like most writers do. I finished my graduate program and I spent a year working basically um, on like a library database was the, the very short version of it, um, helping to catalog old books uh, that was while my husband was finishing grad school. And then That sounds really back- fun actually. <laughs> it actually was really cool. It was um It was a a project basically where you weren't even just cataloging the old books, but we were basically putting XML coding around it, um, which not to get too technical, we're saying like, this is the title, like this is the author. Here is like, here are the sections. We're sort of looking at the structure of the book, but we got to read them. And so I was reading like really old cookbooks and old, you know, treatises on, you know, religious reformation and just all kinds of really cool, weird stuff. And it was, it was sort of fun to look at that. Um, But so I was, I was basically being a code monkey during that year to um you know pay for food and rent. And then um uh, my husband and I moved back to Boston and um I was I took a job at a startup where basically my job was to um, make PowerPoint presentations to go along with, um, talks that doctors had given. So doctors would give a talk about whatever their specialty was. And I would just have to make a slide that like listed all the bullet points that they were saying. Um, you know, so, you know, really stuff that wasn't, wasn't of personal interest to me. And, um, I was doing sort of freelance proofreading and freelance editing. And, um, in the meantime, whenever I could, I would go to the coffee shop and I would sit and I would write, um, and so it it took a while really for me to kind of get my feet under me. um, I think that's true for most writers, yeah, yeah, uh it's really funny, just as
0: an aside, what you're describing with the book cataloging cataloging is similar to uh I was copy editing uh for this project where Rolling Stone was putting a lot of their database uh online. And so, like we had, like somebody else was doing the code, but we had to copy edit the transfer because it wasn't always like very clean. Well, so, yeah,
1: that's I, uh, similar. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying. just like
0: reading these like crazy old Hunter S. Thompson articles and like all of these like amazing old Cameron Crow profiles, and it's, it was just a really a really fun way to earn some money.
1: I felt similarly. It was. It's sort of fun to, um, you know, to get to be asked to sort of read through documents that you wouldn't have picked up ordinarily, right. and it was for me a really good way of kind of um, just sparking some. Ideas I don't think anything that I read there directly led to a story, but I'm sure that it is now sort of in the, you know, like the card catalog in my brain and at some point it's going to come out. Right.
0: So do you feel like now, you know, after the release of a second book that you, that you have a kind of I'm a full time writer routine?
1: I, I try and think about it that way. I, f- I feel like um, my stance is very much like, well, I wrote one book and basically I wanted it to do well enough that I would be allowed to write a second book. Right. and So I was allowed to write the second book. And so now I think it's done well enough that I'm going to be allowed to write a third book. And so now I have to get writing on the third book. But for me, it's, it's less of a, OK, so now I'm on the downslope and more of a sort of like, OK, I, I've made one more stepping stone that I can now hop onto. And I'm going to hope that like then there will be another stepping stone that I can hop onto after that. Um, but I'm, I'm writing full time now. And so what I do basically is, um, I take my son to school and then I get to writing and then I write until it's time to go and pick him up. And so I'm, you know, I've got like a a six hour writing day, um, in which I'm trying to get my work done.
0: How, how is that for you? I I'm fascinated by, uh, You know, because I think I think you're absolutely right that so many writers are just squeezing it in for a very long time and kind of working schedules around it. So then, when you get that big chunk of time, I, I imagine it takes your brain a while to adjust to having that.
1: It really does. Um it's been a real change in my the rhythm of my writing life. When I was writing everything I never told you, um I went through four drafts and the first three were before my son. And I was very sort of precious about when I would write. I would go, well, I'm not in the mood today, so I'm not going to write. I'm going to go to the museum, I'm going to read. And then when I did write, I would write for, you know, like 8 hours in a stretch, mm-hmm. late into the night, and then I would, you know, crash for 2 days. And that wasn't really possible once my son came around. And so I had to be much more regimented, which is when he went to daycare, I had to write because otherwise it wasn't going to happen. And so now I've become a person who sort of checks in with a project every day. Um, You know, I sit down every morning and I may or may not produce any pages, but I'm at least thinking about the project every day. I'm at my desk every day. Um, And it does take a lot of, um, it's it's a gear shift in my mind to think about, you know, that you're there and it's not this burst of inspiration, but that you're there kind of chipping away. Mm -hmm. And there certainly is still a role for inspiration to play, but a lot of it I realize, has to do with discipline for me. And um, like I said, I'm not always creating new pages, but I have to be there thinking about what the book is or thinking about what I'm doing or sort of, as we were saying at the very beginning, sort of looking at the kind of the big picture and trying to figure out what it is that I'm actually trying to say so that I can put that on the page.
0: Right. And you mentioned starting off by reading what you had done the day before. So are you kind of fine tuning as you go rather than getting through a draft and a big burst?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm always sort of, uh, I I'm always, it's like, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm doing the backstitch. If, if you mm-hmm. ever had to like do sewing in mm-hmm. school, we had to do like a sampler in art class, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I think in like fourth or fifth grade. And it's like doing the back stitch where, you know, you take a stitch forward and then you go backwards and you kind of do it over again. And so what you end up with is this neat line of stitches on the front and on the back, you see that you've been circling around and that's very much what the process is for me. Um, I tend to write by ear and so I'll write something and then the next day I'll read it over and if it doesn't sound right to me, if it's not clicking, then I have to kind of go back and tinker with it before I can kind of keep going. And so in a sense, I always have to kind of get the first level of what I'm making stable before I can build another level on top of it. I wish I were the kind of person who could just write one big burst so that then I could step back see what I was doing and then kind of fix it again. But that's, that's not how it's been working for me.
0: It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's very much not in my nature, but I've been doing that for the past year because, uh, I, I was found that in, in all of my writing, kind of even before the novel came along, that I was just really paralyzed by this sense of perfectionism that I had developed along the way. And I just, you know, it just first of all sucked all the oxygen out of it and it became like not a fun experience, which is not the point. And then right. um I, I just felt like I couldn't even start, you know, because you're just like, well, but is that good enough? I don't know. And so I've been very much, uh, for now, you know, the past like year or so, like on this mantra of just like only forward. And it's really hard. It's very, yeah. very hard.
1: <laughs> it's very well, it's very hard to turn off that, you know, that kind of critical voice in your yeah. head um it's just it's really difficult all the time and um there's a saying that someone said to me which is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good which yes. i really like which i love that idea because i am myself a perfectionist um you know that you, you i feel like you have to find your own sort of comfort point on that continuum of like being a perfectionist versus sort of charging full steam ahead and this is where i actually am always sort of jealous of um people who've had training in journalism because i feel like all the journalists that i know um they because you have to write on deadline, yeah. there's a certain point at which you go, I just got to get this down mm-hmm. and then I will I'll fix it up somewhat, but at a certain point it's going to be done and I have to I have to file it. right. And they, you know, they're really good at generating work and they're also really good about letting work go. Yes. And that's a skill that I, I really admire where you're like, yep, so that piece didn't didn't take. And for a lot of fiction writers, I think, especially because we spend so long laboring on each of these sort of little pieces, it's really hard to let go of stuff that you spent a lot of time on, even when you need to. Um, like you said, you know, that process of going back and then taking out all of the the pieces that you realize that you don't need, you had to write them to get to where you are. But it's it's a, it's wrenching to, to get rid of that. And I feel like it's good practice for writers to just throw away some of their work periodically
0: That's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the very early tenets that I learned in journalism was to like, you know, you're in the, I mean, this was when I was actually like in a newsroom, but you're in a newsroom writing an article. um, Okay, cut 10% of it. Or cut 30%, 30%, then cut 10% from that.
1: Yeah, I, I have a friend who when uh, when we were teaching writing in graduate school, he he did this, you know, rather mean, but I think really instructive exercise with his students where he had them write a story that was two pages long. And he said, oh, your editor called and now you have to cut it in half. And so then he the next day they'd come back and he's like, same story, but you just have to cut it in half. And then they'd come in and he'd go, oh, you have to cut it in half again. And then he would finally say, oh, you have to cut it down to a paragraph. And then he'd say, now you have to cut it down to a sentence. And it, re- it really made them distill sort of what the story was, you know, and. And they kind of hated it, but I think they also learned a lot from it, that feeling of not being attached so much to the specific language, but really paring down to sort of what the core of that story was.
0: Yeah, I think that journalism really does... And I mean, I think in some sense this can definitely go too far. And I think in a, I think it started to go a bit too far for me when I was switching projects. Like I think it, it really does take the preciousness out of it and it really it makes it very much just like a job. Like you show up, you have to show up at the desk, you have to do the thing, get over yourself, do the thing.
1: Exactly. I mean I think it it allows it it, it reminds you, I think, that this really is sort of like um it's 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 about workmanship to a certain extent right it's it's there is an art to it but there's also a certain amount of just sitting down and getting the work done and it's you know you have to keep both of those things in balance and um i know that as a as a creative writer i often tend too far on the you know artsy side of like oh this has to be perfect and sometimes you just have to you just have to start and get it down
0: right so so how much do you find your drafts changing from revision to revision
1: um they change I would say both a good amount and and also not a lot. So which sounds which sounds like I'm I'm hedging but there are certain big things that I will always have to go back and change. So it might be structure. Um, I usually have the plot down because, as I said, I can't usually get started until I have an idea of where I'm going. Um, i not always right, but sometimes, you know, I generally have an idea of these are going to be the main events of the story. Um, but so sometimes the structure is changing because I realize that the pieces are not sort of lining up in the way that they need to. And so sometimes I'll make a really big radical change like that and I'll retell the story, you know, structurally. But a lot of times the sort of big beats of the story um, for me, are there from the beginning. And a lot of times, sort of the the passages that I write first often, um, because they're sort of the the heart of the story, um, or the essence of the story, a lot of times, they're still there in the final product, almost word for word. Mm.
0: And, and I loved this interview that I read with you, where you were talking about narrative voice and how late, I think this was with everything I never told you, how late to the process that came and and kind of clicking into that omniscient narrator and, and finding inspiration for that. Is voice generally something that you, you know, when you're thinking in those early stages, is that something you have to have before you can get started? Like you hear a couple sentences and are like, okay, that's it.
1: Yeah, we, that's very much the case. And when I when I start off, I usually need to have the the opening lines. And so it was actually very unusual for me that in everything I never told you, the opening line changed. Because usually for me, the opening line is the first thing that I get down, and that's sort of my door into the story. Um, and I think it is because of voice, like you said, that that's the voice that I know that's going to tell the story. Because it tells you so much about... What direction you're looking at, um, what the relationship of the narrator is to the material, what the relationship of the reader is going to be to the material, what distance you're at, all of those things are, are, are all sort of bundled up together in voice. And so for me, usually I need that voice before I can get started because otherwise I can, I can feel that I'm not quite on the right footing. And so it was it was very unusual to have changed that so late in the process, and everything I never told you. It was in the last draft that I came to that um the omniscient narrator's voice,
0: and then from that point, was it kind of i mean almost in a sense a rewrite or were, you know was it was it more of a rewrite than an edit after that
1: uh, you know I'm trying to remember um what I do remember about that was that once I got the omniscient narrative voice going, once I had established it in the beginning section everything else clicked into place really easily. I don't think I've had, um, a revision process that ever went so easily before. And I think a lot of it was getting that voice right. I mean, the thing about the omniscient voice is that it's, it's not necessarily always present. A lot of times what it's doing is it's providing the sort of connective tissue between what the individual characters are thinking. And so I was moving from a bunch of very close third-person point of view to this omniscient narration. And so what I really needed was for the narrator to kind of come in and in all the gaps in between those things and link them up and juxtapose them in the right way. And so there was a certain amount of rewriting, but there was also just a lot of the material that I had already been working with that still belonged in the book. It just needed to be sort of positioned correctly.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. Kind of off that, uh, do you, are you working on anything now that you want to talk about? It's totally okay if not. I know that
1: sometimes it feels <laughs> I'm, like. I'm, I'm not yet. I have a few short stories that I'm trying to go back and finish and I'm I've got two ideas for um, longer works in my head, and I'm sort of in that kind of like magpie stage where I'm gathering up stuff and going, oh, this is pretty. Maybe this will belong in here. Ooh, that's interesting. Maybe this will belong here." But I don't yet know. Um, I don't know yet know sort of the shape of each of those projects. Like I don't have the voice yet, and I don't have sort of the those sort of main beats as I was telling you about, and so I'm still figuring all of that out. Right.
0: Uh, and I, I had read in some interviews with you a couple little tricks that I loved and I wanted to talk to you more about, um, sure. well, one, one is, one is one that I do too, actually, which is to leave notes for yourself where, about where you leave off, um, and like where you're going to pick back up next. And I've been writing a lot longhand. And so I've kind of developed this routine of like sticking a post-it at the end of the longhand and kind of giving myself a little like road back in. Uh, is that something that you still do?
1: I do. I do it in different ways, um, and so sometimes I'll leave myself a little note in the text, like I I type on the computer because I'm faster at that than longhand. Mm-hmm. But where I was like, so you know, coming up this scene, right? Um, sometimes there are notes in the middle of what I'm doing. I got this from a friend of mine, a writer um, called Beth Nguyen, who she said she. She calls it the magical TK, which is basically, she's like, you can put this, like, if you get stuck, you don't have to stop what you're doing and come up with a name. You can just put TK. Whoever, That's journalism to the rescue again. Exactly. And I was like, this is genius. And she's like, and you can TK anything. You can be like, TK. She's like, you know, TK, description of restaurant. Or it can be TK, relationship with mother. Right? So it could be as large or small as you want. But in a sense, it's a, it's a placeholder so that you don't lose your momentum, but you know to come back. And it's a reminder to yourself of what you need to learn about to come fill in. And so... So now I do this all the time, and I just think she's a genius. Um, so that's that's another way that I leave notes to myself all all the time. I love that. And then I had read you say, and I didn't even
0: know this was a thing that was possible, that you had set your computer up to automatically open the file that you're writing in.
1: Yes, you can you can do that. Um, so uh, that was when I was using a, a PC. I'm sure there's a way to do it on a Mac as well, but uh, at least on a PC, there's a thing called the startup folder. So anything that's in that folder opens up automatically when you turn on, when you boot up the computer. And so that might be, you know, back in the day, it was like your instant messaging program or your email or a web browser or whatever. So you can do that. So basically, when you open up the computer, your file opens up, um, and and somehow that that overcomes a barrier for me of just having it. Like if it's already sitting there staring me in the face, then I kind of have to get to work. Got it. Right. I think
0: that's actually, funnily enough, kind of what prompted the longhand thing was like, it felt there's something about it feels less intimidating. It's like, well, I'm just sitting on my couch with a notebook. Like I'm not, I'm not at my desk.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, I think there are all these tricks that writers use basically to fool themselves into writing. Like, I think that's what the point of, you know, people who say that they they write, their their goal is 500 words, and then they stop at 500 words, right? That's your your trick of getting yourself to go, you're like, I just have to write 500 words, and I'm done, right? Or I just have to do this one little thing. It's this way of making it seem less intimidating to yourself. And sort of whatever gets you to do that is kind of what you just have to go with.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's something that's been really, frankly, comforting during the show is just listening to all the different methods that people have, and all the ways that like, you know, there are all of these ways of getting into the same place, which is just like everybody is just trying to figure it out.
1: Yes, (laughs) which is it's both sort of disappointing, but also really encouraging to me that, um, you know, as I was working on my first novel, and then as I worked on my second novel, I would ask writer friends who'd gone through it before. Um, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? And they'd give me all this advice. And then at a certain point, they would always confess that this advice didn't always work for them. Right. And that they were kind of figuring it out. Right. You know, so one person would say, well, I do all this research. I do all that. And then I close all of my research notebooks and just write from what's in my head. Right. Right. You know, everybody is sort of trying to figure out their own route into this sort of like magical world of actually getting words on the paper. And it's sort of like once you've gone through that route, that route doesn't necessarily work for you anymore. But like Mm -hmm. everybody is sort of just trying to kind of trick themselves into getting there. What does
0: creative satisfaction look like for you right now?
1: For me it's still it's still a very small bore question that creative satisfaction. Um for me it's still about like getting writing a sentence on the page and looking at it and going yes that's an accurate representation of what was in my head. Um I still find it kind of miraculous that we as as human beings can take thoughts out of our head and put them down on paper in forms that then can give that thought to somebody else. Um and so for me if I am spending time thinking about what it is that I'm trying to say to actually be able to get that page or to get that down on the page is, is really satisfying to me, whether it's a sentence or an image or an idea, whatever it is. Um, that's always where it starts.
0: Yeah. I really love that answer. Cause there, cause there is such a, there is an inevitable come down, right? Between what you've have in your head and what you get on the page. And so to just kind of be like, that is very close is like, yes. it's a good, that's a good victory to celebrate.
1: Exactly. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time. It's, it's never quite exactly the thought you have. Um, and Patchett has a great essay in which she compares it to like, you know, you see a butterfly, butterfly, but in order to get it, you have to kind of smash it on the page and you have to like pin it down and it's never going to be quite the same. But when you're like, okay, I've done a reasonably good job of it. It's enough that you know that this was once a butterfly and approximately what it looked like. That's, that's sort of a victory.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.